I'd like to begin, I was thinking as I was sitting here today about what a great church this is, sitting up here near the choir, and we have an amazing choir, and and the bells, and the trumpet, I mean, it's We are so blessed by music every week. And then to think, you know, all three, we we, we really have three congregations. You know, we have the 830 church, and then we have the 11 o'clock church, and then we have the Balkanites up there, uh, each each with their own sort of subculture and habits. Uh, and, uh, And then what other church could you go to where a staff person invites you to take books from the library? I... I just, you know, it's, how many of you have ever stolen a book? Well, no, we better not say that. Uh, anyway, but it's, isn't it great? You can just go and take a book and not even feel guilty about it. So, uh, you know, as I was thinking about where we are as a congregation, we're, we're embarking on a series or a process, you would say, of, of discernment together. We're calling it Dreams for Riverside. We're looking as a congregation at where we are headed. What is our vision? What will be our priorities that might shape shape our church, our mission for years to come? And I want you to know that uh, I'm sure Steve and I, we probably have our own opinions about that, but I think we both recognize that that is really not our call. That this process of discernment, it's, it's for you, the congregation of this church, to, to figure out where is God leading us, what is God calling us to do and be. And I do think it's uh, important for us to weigh in in certain ways. For example, today I've, I've been thinking about this passage of Scripture that we will read and, and how it relates to the future of the church and to the sense of purpose to which we may be called. I think it's really Uh, very germane. There's a lot of evidence today uh, that there is a religious decline across the West, and a lot of attention is also being paid to the growth of fundamentalism, especially in the global South. But in some ways, the theories of growth or decline are beside the point. What is happening across the world is a sense of shift, a shifting conception of God. In a wide variety of cultures, God is becoming, in a sense, more unmediated, local, animating the natural world and human activity. God is near us. Now, this has always been the path of mystics, the word of those uh, who are in touch, who maybe live in monasteries or caves, that sort of thing. But, but today it seems that one, what was once reserved for a few select saints is now become the uh, quest of millions of people to find a God and to be able to touch and feel and experience and know God themselves. Jewish scholar Abraham Abraham Heschel referred to this God as the God of pathos, who loves the world profoundly 
feels with creation and participates in its life. Participates not only in the suffering and pain of this life, but also in the joy and even in the mundane days of life. In the years since Heschel wrote, there has been a a rise of a cultural language uh, of the uh, nearness or the imminence of God. God in the seashore, in the sunset, in the garden we plant, at home, in the work we do, in the games we play or watch, when we eat or drink. People who identify as spiritual but not religious or religiously unaffiliated, completely unconnected to any kind of religious tradition, in other words, the nuns, these people often still use a vocabulary of theological intimacy. It is not as if they don't care about anything spiritual or have no theology, although some still worship a distant majesty and others deny divine existence altogether, many millions of contemporary people are experiencing God in far more personal and accessible ways than ever before, and often it is occurring outside the boundaries of traditional church. I think I'd like to read now the text for today because I think we're going to see such an experience in the story. Let us listen for God's word. It comes to us from the fourth chapter of Luke. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Then he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives recovery of sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. I thought about sitting down at this point, but I'm not sure I would get back up. But it would be common for the uh, teacher or preacher of the day to sit. And then all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, and now listen, because this is really the first words of Jesus in Luke. He began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus has recently been baptized at the Jordan River. He's gone into the wilderness for a time of temptation. And now in Luke, this is his first public act. Well, not exactly. 
I mean, last week in John, his first act was to go to a wedding and turn water into wine. But Luke and John don't exactly have the same chronology or the same theological purpose. And, and so uh, Luke is changing the order up a little bit. So he's saying right here at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, when the reports about him are spreading far and wide, people are praising him, he goes to his own hometown synagogue. Can you imagine that? What a big day it was. The hometown boy that they've heard so much about coming home and they've invited him to be the guest preacher. And I can imagine people going up to Mary and Joseph and saying, oh, you must be so proud of your son. I mean, he's come so far. He's doing so well for himself. And imagine some people saying, boy, he looks different. He's grown up so much taller. He's, he's wearing his hair different now, isn't he? And you know, is he dating anyone? I, I heard he's still single. Uh, you know, and there's probably somebody on the stewardship committee saying, God, we should have made this the stewardship Sunday. This, this would have been perfect to have the guest preacher coming in. So many expectations for Jesus as he walks into his home synagogue. The place where he had been raised by his family. Luke wants us to know that he was a faithful Jew from a faithful family. Raised going to Sabbath as was his custom. A part of the village. But we don't hear anything about Jesus' life from age 12 to now when he's approximately 30. This big gap of silence. And so I wonder... I wonder where he was, what he was doing. I wonder if he was like so many of our adolescents and young adults today, who when they reached that time in their lives, they just drifted off. They said, I don't want that anymore. I've gone to synagogue every Sabbath. I know all the rules and the scriptures. I don't need it. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to go surfing. I'm going to go hang out with my friends. I'm going to sleep in. I wonder if he was like the young adults that we know or the adolescents that we see today. We know that that large numbers that have been raised in churches are absent from our congregations today. I was at a conference this past week with Diana Butler Bass, and she is a sociologist of religion and visits a lot of churches. And she said one thing that she has seen often is a sense of sadness and almost shame in congregations about the fact that their children are not there any longer. The children that they have raised in Sunday school are absent, and they're grieving. And she talked about a a woman who was just so distraught because she feared that when she died, she would never see her grandchild again because she wasn't sure her grandchild would be in heaven with her. Such a sense of sadness that they weren't able to talk about. I wonder if Jesus was a part of that, gone for over a decade from the synagogue. What brought him back? 
I wonder what would have brought Jesus back. You know, in Luke, it looks like he hears from his cousin John and ends up going out to the river, the Jordan River, along with throngs of other people, and he has some kind of spiritual encounter in or at the river and maybe going on into the wilderness. He has some kind of mystical experience with the Spirit, described as a dove coming down, a voice from heaven, something that affirmed him as beloved Son of God. Something happened to Jesus. And I'm suggesting that he had some kind of experience of the Spirit and that maybe that pushed him back to Nazareth, back into uh, a solidarity with his village, his family, his synagogue, right up to the steps where he would be asked to speak, to read the scripture of the day, and to comment on it. We know that just in the last seven years, the percentage of nuns, people who are completely unaffiliated with any religion, has grown in this country from 16% to 23%. In seven years, almost one in four people. And yet, do not think that these people are irreligious or amoral because the Pew Research tells us that one in two Americans would say that they have had some kind of mystical encounter, some kind of spiritual experience that has transformed their lives. So that would mean a lot of the nuns are among those people. They are experiencing something, some sense of wonder or awe, some connection with transcendence, something beyond themselves that, that has changed them, maybe given them meaning, and yet not within the bounds of traditional religion. Now, if you are a follower of Karl Barth, that would not be enough for you. That would not sit well with you, because Karl Barth explained that general revelation is good and helpful, but limited, and that we must have a special revelation initiated by God, and it's the Word of God, the Word incarnate in Jesus. That special revelation, that's how we have sure knowledge of God. But his counterpart, Paul Tillich, would not necessarily agree. Paul Tillich talked about encountering one who is the ground of our being. One who is present, the all in all. Not that God is equal to everything, but that God is encountered everywhere. Karl Rainer Rahner said, In 1975, he said, in the days ahead, 
you will either be a mystic, i.e. one who has an experience of God for real, or you will be nothing at all. And I suggest that perhaps Jesus became a mystic. Perhaps he had a spiritual experience in the tradition with John the Baptist and the others, the spirit coming down that propelled him into public ministry. He came to Nazareth. The book or the scroll of Isaiah was chosen for him. And he then chose the passage of Scripture. And he chose this passage I read from Isaiah, a passage that was originally intended for the community in exile in Babylon, the community of God's people who had been displaced, who were without power, who could not vote for their leaders, they had no citizenship, no legal rights, they were swallowed up by a pagan culture, they were homesick, Isaiah spoke to them of a future, of a day of homecoming, of rebirth and restoration, liberation, and yes, economic justice. That's implied where he says the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. And then he he says, today I am inaugurating this new age, this work of God. His own mystical experience, his own experience of the Spirit did not lead him merely inward, isolated, insulated from everyone else. In fact, it propelled him toward the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed. Now, if it was such good news... Why all the resistance and hatred that later, very soon, as a matter of fact, would come to Jesus? The reason is because Jesus refused to endorse the nativism and the nationalism of his own community. He stood in prophetic judgment over it. A couple weeks ago, we had a gathering here, uh, an open community conversation about Syrian refugees. A few of you probably were here, but the vast majority of the standing room only crowd that was here were not members of this church. A lot of them not probably members of any church, clearly many uh, followers of other religions or no religion. Uh, it, It was a packed house Uh, The energy in the room was palpable. It was a great conversation. It wasn't as if we solved any problems or uh, any political platforms were put forth. But the fact that that many people from our city, on our community, came here, and we were able to be the locus of hospitality and safe space for that conversation. What a gift of God that was. What a moment of, I think, spiritual power for that community through this church. I was so thankful that we were able to do that and willing to do that. I think 
often when I reflect on where I experience the Spirit of God moving, often it is out in just such gatherings like that. Now Luke wants us to know this, that when Jesus' ministry started, it began with an experience of the Spirit in his life. It claimed him in baptism, it tested him in the wilderness, and it connected him to the poor and the blind and the oppressed. Jesus' experience of God was both continuous with his religious upbringing and discontinuous, which got him into trouble. He was led to say no to some of his tradition. No to the false options of institutional religion and of the world that claim power and security, spectacle and flash and bigness, and say yes to the people outside the walls of his tribe. That's what his experience led him to do. He he heard, I am beloved son, and then he heard, go out to those people. It seems like a simple insight. God is the grounding. God is the one in whom we are all grounded. And we experience this when we experience the soil as holy and water as life-giving, when the sky opens up our imagination and our roots, our human roots matter, and home is a sacred place, and our lives are linked with our neighbors and with those around the globe. That is what I think Jesus learned and began to share as good news. This world, today, now, not some far away heaven, is the sacred stage of our lives. Thanks be to God.